Listener Production. Have you ever felt like a doctor isn't listening to you? Certainly for me, the biggest red flag was how early and how aggressively they pushed the sort of psychological explanation comment. In this episode of The Briefing, research into the communication breakdown that leads to misdiagnosis. The longer doctors take to take a history, the better the diagnosis might be. Misdiagnosis, when your doctor isn't listening. That is our briefing topic in just a sec. First, today's headlines. It is Tuesday, the 16th of August. Former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has slammed Scott Morrison over the revelations Morrison secretly appointed himself to jointly run the health, finance and resources portfolios while PM. This is one of the most appalling things I've ever heard in our federal government. The idea that a prime minister would be sworn in to other ministries secretly is incredible. I'm astonished that Morrison thought he could do it. I'm astonished that Cabinet went along with it. And I'm even more astonished that the Governor-General was party to it. That's Malcolm Turnbull on ABC 7.30. So the Governor-General, David Hurley, has confirmed in a statement that he signed the papers. And this doesn't seemed like a great look for him. His statement said that it was not uncommon for ministers to be appointed to manage departments other than their portfolio responsibility. And then as to the point on whether this was announced publicly or not, he said that was a matter for the government of the day. But obviously, this situation seems very uncommon, in fact, unprecedented. Yeah, I think the unprecedented part is indeed that secrecy. I mean, it's not super unprecedented for the Prime Minister of the day to do this, but why was it that they didn't tell anyone? And the fact that so many former ministers are coming forward, kind of washing their hands of this and saying, I didn't know, I had no idea. I mean, surely more people knew than are letting on right now. Uh, here's what the current Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, has had to say about it. We have a Westminster system of government that produces accountability. This is a sort of tin pot activity that we would ridicule if it was in a non-democratic country. So his department head is looking into it and we're going to hear more about the action that will be taken in response to this. So in terms of what Scott Morrison's colleagues have said, uh, Greg Hunt, the health minister, is the only one who says he was aware of what was going on. Matthias Cormann, who was former finance minister, he said he didn't know. And then the current opposition leader, Peter Dutton, said he didn't know about it. Um, although he didn't slam Scott Morrison about it. Paul Fletcher, Bridget McKenzie, Darren Chester, quite a few others in the coalition didn't know about it. And Morrison, I think, is going to have to explain himself here. Um, Mm. So far, he hasn't responded to questions about this. This first started on the weekend in the Australian newspaper. There are reports in the newspapers today that he texted one journo at Sky and said he hadn't heard what Albanese had said about this because, Mm. quote, since leaving the job, I don't engage in day-to-day politics. <sighs> another odd statement given he is a member of parliament on $200,000 a year of taxpayer money. $211,000 is his uh, current salary. Gee, that would be nice to have to not engage in the day-to-day of what you do. So I think that that has only added more fuel to the fire and he does need to respond in full to these allegations. A new Moderna COVID vaccine that protects against the original virus as well as Omicron has just been approved by British drug regulators. 
So the two-in-one shot will be used as an adult booster, while the side effects are similar to Moderna's original booster and are typically mild and self-resolving. Europe could approve the vaccine as early as next month in time for winter. The approval was granted hours after Moderna reached a deal to build an mRNA vaccine manufacturing facility at Melbourne's Monash University. And this facility could pump out 100 million mRNA vaccine doses every year. And they've applied for approval with the TGA so they can roll out this new vaccine here in Australia. It's called Bivalent. Julian Assange's lawyers in the US are suing the CIA and the former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo for allegedly covertly monitoring Assange along with all of his visitors. So in the extradition hearing currently underway in the UK, uh, the court has heard that a Spanish firm was hired by the CIA to monitor Assange whilst he was holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. Assange's lawyers have said that phone data was copied and handed over to the CIA without even the Ecuadorians knowing, and they believe 100 people could have had their rights violated over the seven years that Assange was in the embassy. Assange is being held in the UK's Belmarsh prison right now, where he's appealing his extradition to the United States. Uh, Over there in the US, he faces charges under the Espionage Act over the theft and publication of hundreds of thousands of secret cables. And if you're renting, there's a good chance your home is colder and damper than the World Health Organization's safety standards. Yeah, so this comes from 75 renters around Australia who installed tracking devices in their homes that recorded temperature and humidity levels at one-minute intervals through June and July this year. So the WHO considers 18 degrees as a safe and well-balanced indoor temperature to protect Uh, the health of general populations during cold seasons. So based on this survey, it turned out that in New South Wales, Victoria, Tassie and ACT, temperatures in these rentals drop below 18 degrees more than 80% of the time. Yeah, I I can imagine in Canberra, many homes, many rentals that I lived in when I was growing up, they felt a lot colder than that. Uh, In Tasmania, rentals spent the most time below 18. ACT got the coldest with the average lowest minimum temperature of just 7.4 degrees. In your house. Can you imagine that? That would be awful, while humidity levels were highest in New South Wales. Yeah, so the maximum safe indoor summer temperature is meant to be 25 degrees, and the study found rental properties often go above that. So I think this information will fuel an ongoing debate about the responsibility of landlords in Australia to provide properties with safe temperatures. Mm. I think in countries like Europe, where they get you know much colder, they take temperature much more seriously. In Australia, it's pretty much like BYO bar, heater and fan and, you know, on your own. And good luck to you. Yeah, something something definitely needs to be done in this space, I think, particularly with the rental crisis that we're facing right now. A huge overhaul would be very welcome. All right, in just a moment, misdiagnosis. If a doctor interrupts you, doesn't ask questions or even listen to your medical history, well, that's a red flag. According to research into how communication breakdowns between you and your doctor can lead to misdiagnosis, and this research has been done by the ANU and the Uni of Melbourne. Yeah, it's a big problem. It's estimated that 140,000 people are misdiagnosed every year in Australia and up to 4,000 of them die. 
So that's almost triple the road toll, and that's based on an extrapolation of misdiagnosis data from the US. Yeah, so we're going to speak to an Australian researcher about why that happens and what to look out for, but first to someone who's lived this scenario. So Jen, and we'll refer to her just by her first name, she first went to the doctor in 2015 with serious gastro problems, prolonged fatigue and brain fog, and it was only this year, seven years later, that she was finally diagnosed with Crohn's disease after years of pain, discomfort and disruption to her life. Jen, with the benefit of hindsight, what were the comments the doctors made in those early consultations that you can now see were red flags that they weren't getting it right? Certainly for me, the biggest red flag was how early and how aggressively they pushed the sort of psychological explanation comments. You know, within minutes usually of the beginning of a consultation, they'd be saying things like, you know, you must have a stressful job. It must be really difficult. Insert whatever thing was going on in my life at the time. And they would say things like, We find that people who have symptoms like these often have stress in their life, those kind of things. The other things that were quite uh, obvious red flags to me were when doctors would reference their own personal experience as though it was the totality of everything that was possible. So they would say things like, well, I've never seen disease X before, so it definitely can't be that. Or they would reference my demographics or, or stereotypes about a disease instead of the actual signs and symptoms that I was presenting with. So they would say things like, this would be uncommon in somebody your age, or we don't see this often in women, which are all things that are really not rooted in my actual experience, but just in stereotypes and bias. So how bad were your physical symptoms in those early years? Very. Um, I was essentially disabled by those symptoms and um, suffered an extraordinary amount and completely unmitigated because the experience that I had was of having that psychological explanation given and the view at the time and, and often for patients today was that I shouldn't receive any physical treatment for my physical symptoms because that would essentially make my alleged delusion worse in that it would make me think I had a physical problem. So I was largely denied access to physical care or pain relief or treatment for my nutrition deficiencies, et cetera. So it really did change my life, change the trajectory of my life because this happened when I was choosing careers and choosing what I would do with my life. And I suffered an, an, an awful amount in that time. And for people that don't know anything about Crohn's disease, what are the symptoms? Is it largely focused around extreme bowel pain? So the stereotypical symptom for Crohn's is diarrhea that occurs repeatedly over a long period of time and often associated with with weight loss. It is often associated with pain and or bloating as well, problems with food and uh, reactions after food. But I really want the audience to understand uh, what was not understood by my doctors, which is that there is a percentage of people with Crohn's who don't experience diarrhea and instead experience severe and intractable constipation. So being told that this was in your head, you know, uh, yes. what kind of impact did that have on the rest of your life? And in terms of the kinds of conversations you were having with your friends and family as well, like did they kind of back up that theory? Uh, largely, yes. Uh, that was very difficult on a lot of my relationships. There were people in my life who didn't know anything about what was happening and in some ways they were the easiest relationships I had. But those who were close to me, of course, they did uh, in various ways. And it's the most horrific thing you can go through to 
be going through something that is so profoundly affecting your life and causing so much suffering and, and changing the way you view yourself and your future and to not have the people around you really believe that it is what you think it is. So it's hard for people to understand how real and severe it is because they think they've had similar experiences, which they haven't. So it was very difficult to find support I needed and to feel validated. And I felt very alone and very vulnerable in that time without that support. So you were diagnosed with Crohn's disease this year. Is the treatment that you've had since that diagnosis helping? And does that highlight how extreme the health impacts were for those years where you you weren't being properly treated? Oh, absolutely. I barely know myself in a really good way um, since I've had that treatment and the effect was really quick, really immediate. Within about a week, a week and a half of, of having that treatment, I didn't know who I was anymore. I was used to, you know, living with very severe fatigue uh, that would mean that I'd be maybe awake eight to nine hours a day and vaguely functional for four hours a day. And suddenly I was waking up at seven ready to go and wondering why I hadn't taken on full-time work because that suddenly felt plausible and being able to plan multiple things in a day and actually feeling like my brain was coming back to me because I had a lot of brain fog for a really long time. And I would notice things in the world in places that I'd been living for years and suddenly see them for the first time because my brain had woken up again and my physical symptoms are still there to an extent. And that's to be expected because I can't be cured. But I would say 80% better almost immediately, which is the most, you know, both an amazing outcome that I'm really glad for, but it also makes me sad to think that was possible and has been possible for years and that I didn't have it sooner. So after all these years of not being listened to, what was the thing that kind of flicked the switch that led to that diagnosis? What finally tipped things over was that during the sort of COVID period that we've been through the last two years, I developed very suddenly unexplained neurological symptoms, which I guess were quite different than this pattern of gastrointestinal symptoms that I'd had. So they were they were an outlier, I thought. I had those investigated, got the same response that it must be in my head, it must be psychological. But I knew that I could live with constipation, I could live with the fatigue, whatever, but neurological symptoms made me realise I'm probably in really serious trouble here when I started tripping over myself and being unable to move my hands in the way I expected, et cetera. So the fear of what that meant really did push me to just keep trying. And I started just doing the research myself with reputable sources and eventually found a reasonable theory and thankfully had a GP willing to pursue that theory with me and and start that testing process that did eventually lead to the diagnosis. So what advice would you give to other people who feel like their doctor is getting it wrong? Don't be afraid to stand up for yourself and to do that quite strongly if you need to, because the reality is you may be fighting for your life and not know it. And even if you're not fighting for your life, you're fighting for your quality of life and and that really matters. Don't be afraid of seeking a second, third, fourth opinion because your life and your quality of life are more important than, than somebody's feelings or the way that they feel about themselves professionally. And I would also say, you know, seek information from reputable sources, and I can't stress that enough, places like the Mayo Clinic or Better Health Channel, because you will find information that helps you ask the right questions and, and wonder about whether what's happening for you is, is correct. 
That's Jen. All right, let's find out more about the communication breakdown that leads to misdiagnosis. Maria Dahm is a senior research fellow at the ANU. She's also the lead author of a report that came out earlier this year that analysed videos of medical consults. Maria, thanks for joining us. What did your research reveal about the reasons for misdiagnosis? In the study that we did, we found that the longer doctors take to take a history, the better the diagnosis might be. So if patients really had the chance to talk without being interrupted or actually really were listened to and given their history, because the doctor spent more time with them on their history, the diagnosis were, were better or correct in that study especially coming from the perspective of patients should be listened to, otherwise they feel dismissed. Interruptions happen so often in really the first 18 to 11 seconds on the last 40 years, studies have looked at that. In 1984, it was 18 seconds that you get to talk until the doctor interrupts you for the first time. In 2019, it was 11 seconds. Like, do you know how short that is? Mm. So really giving patients time to talk really gives them an opportunity to share what their personal circumstances are, what their feelings are, but also what their symptoms are. And there might be symptoms that are really important that a patient never gets to talk about because they're interrupted really early on. And then they feel like, oh, maybe that's not really important to, to mention. So we just heard Jen's story, which centered around Crohn's disease, and it took her seven years to get a diagnosis. Are there particular... Yeah conditions, diseases like Crohn's disease or or other syndromes that, that are often misdiagnosed and often because they're so complex and difficult to, to properly assess. The research on diagnostic error really has shown there's three big areas that usually cause trouble, not in terms of length, but in terms of misdiagnoses and their cancer and vascular problems. But then there's also these problems that you have that take a really, really long time to diagnose. So you just mentioned Crohn's disease. One other one that has really, really lengthy delays in diagnosis is endometriosis. Mm. So it can be up to 10 years. It's getting better because it has gotten a lot more attention. It's not just regular pain and women have to live with that. But misdiagnosis also really plays a role in sort of, if you look at some of the inequities that happening in medical research as well, for the longest time, research really has looked at males as their clinical trial subjects. And if you look, for example, at women and heart attacks, they have a lot more different what would be considered non-typically male symptoms when they present. So they might have abdominal pain or back pain and a woman, they don't have the regular chest pain and the pain down the arm. So what do you think the key problems are here that could be solved? Do you think it's about better listening techniques by doctors? Is it educating us as the patients on how we should approach these consultations? Or do you reckon we should be going to specialists for these big areas where we often see misdiagnosis? So I think it's a bit of both. So Obviously, doctors have time constraints and they always say, oh, I don't have time to really talk to or be patient-centered, which is a bit of a myth because if you really listen to your patient, if you set an agenda up front, if you like ask them, what's the most important thing? What's your priority or what's the thing you're most scared of or what do you really want to get out of this consultation? Patients are really receptive to that and it will help the doctor streamline the conversation that they're about to have. And it doesn't really take more time. The other thing is in listening and why patients often feel dismissed is because doctors 
might give an explanation, but the explanation is not tailored to what the patient has said. So if a patient comes and says, oh, I have a history of this and that, I'm really scared about it. And then the doctor says, oh yeah, it's not that. That's really dismissive. But if the doctor said, oh, you're looking at your history and at your age, but your symptoms don't really fit the disease that you're worried about, or we might run this test to exclude it, that's a much better approach and much less dismissive. That was Maria Dahm, Senior Research Fellow at the ANU. It's a difficult area, isn't it, Katrina? I mean, the job of a GP is extremely challenging. General practice, they have to be across so many things. Yeah, I know, and especially with the churn and burn of consults, and especially right now, they're so overwhelmed with the sheer volume of people they're seeing with COVID, the flu, various other things. It's a tough gig, but the principles here... It reminds me almost of if you've ever been to relationship counselling. It's the same sort of thing, like don't interrupt, listen to the other person, don't make assumptions. It's just kind of communication 101, isn't it? It is, yeah. I guess a question there about when these really tricky conditions like Crohn's disease should be referred to a specialist. But as you say, you need to understand the problem before you do anything else. And that does come down to good communication skills, i.e. listening. Tomorrow in the briefing, we're looking at the threat posed by extremists on the far right, neo-Nazis in Australia. Listener.